uh, across the Mediterranean a little bit uh, directly west to the island of Cyprus. So you can see here on the map, Cyprus is that one right in the bottom there. They're coming from sort of halfway up the coast there, uh, straight across, and Salamis, where they land, is kind of on the northeast uh, side of the island there. So it's the natural starting point. But we don't hear much about what happens there. They did preach the word of God there, but, but what we're going to hear a bit more is the other side of the island. They're going to go to the southwest side of the island now, or the far west side of the island. Uh, to a city called Paphos. So verse 6, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So here's these missionaries on the first missionary journey. They go to the island of Cyprus, a beautiful island, and they are proclaiming the word of God. What's the response they get? It's mixed, right? Some people are interested. Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul, he wants to find out more. But there's this other guy, this Jewish sorcerer, who's opposed to the message. Okay, now Jewish sorcerer is a, a term that should not be, right? Uh, Sorcery, magic, was something that was strictly prohibited from those who were the true uh, Israelites, those who uh, worshipped the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So already we see here that this Jewish man uh, is not faithful uh, to his call to worship the true God, right? Sorcery, magic, that's not something that God's people uh, are supposed to be involved with. So in the first place, this guy shouldn't be involved in the magic, those kind of things. But, but in the second place, he shouldn't be opposing the message about Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the king that God sent to rescue his people and send his blessing to all the nations, all the people of the world. So who should have responded to this message? Who should have responded to the gospel? Of these two people, Sergius Paulus versus a Jew, who would you expect to accept the message of Jesus? The Jew, right? That would have been the natural person to respond because he would have been uh, hopefully brought up if he was a faithful Jew to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this, and Jesus is the, the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. So naturally, the Jewish man should have been the one who should have accepted this message with joy. And, and this Roman ruler, he's, he's a bit unusual that he's interested in the message because he probably would have been uh, worshiping some sort of pagan deities, right? Okay, but opposition comes from the Jewish man, interest from Sergius Paulus. So this Jewish man, not only is he a sorcerer, but he's also opposing the message of Jesus, which means that he is opposing the work of God. So Saul is going to be pretty harsh with him. Verse 9, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So no sorcerer, right? No magic, no power is able to withstand the power of God. God, the, the point of Acts throughout is that God's power overcomes any kind of opposition. There's nothing that can withstand God's power. And so this man who's opposing God is judged for his opposition. 
It's actually interesting here that what happens to him is very similar to what had happened to Saul himself when he was still opposing the church. Remember what happened to him? He was on the road to persecute more Christians, and Jesus encounters him in this bright light, and what happens? He's struck blind for a time, just like this man, blind for a time, and someone has to lead him by the hand into the city, just like uh, this sorcerer is having to be led by the hand. So there's, there's a tiny little hint here that's not expanded upon, but a tiny little hint that it's possible for this man to repent. So it's a cool little hint. We don't hear more about it, but there's just a possibility there. But in any case, this allows Sergius Paulus a chance to respond uh, to Saul's message. Verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Okay, quick question. What amazes you about what has just happened? I'm amazed by the guy who got struck blind, right? That's a pretty powerful uh, demonstration of, of God's power, something that you're not going to forget if you see that kind of thing happen. But what is Sergius Paulus amazed at? The end of verse 12. He's amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He's amazed at this message about Jesus because it's an incredible message. I mean, that's a great line. We're amazed because here's a display of power, but this man is amazed not only at the display of power, but the fact that, that this message is powerful. There's life in this message. Okay, so these Christians, these first missionaries, they come to the island of Cyprus with a message to tell, and as they do so, they meet up with, meet up with a mixed response. Some people want to hear more. They're amazed at the message, and others oppose it, and they reject it. But really, I was thinking about this. It shouldn't surprise us that there's, there's some people who want to hear and some people who don't want to hear, right? Uh, this happens at, at our house all the time. Emily and I have a little a song that we like to sing that, that the lyrics are, uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Uh, we, we sing this often in our household. But surprisingly, our kids don't share our enthusiasm for this song. Rather than joining in and kind of making it a nice family round of it, they uh, cover their ears and run off down the hall and say, Don't sing that song anymore. That sounds like a perfectly great song to me. But I, th- I think in a couple of years we'll, we'll be expected to uh, hear the uh, second rendition of it. They're going to kind of build in the lyrics, Fathers, don't exasperate your children. So they're going to get me back eventually as they are taught the Bible. So here's the first stop. The first missionary journey, first major stop that we see. A, a Jewish sorcerer opposes the message about Jesus, but a Roman ruler believes it and accepts it. Okay, Good. Any questions? You can ask questions. We, we could do that. No? We're good? Okay. Stop two. You can stop me at any point. We're okay. Really. It'll be a fun morning. Uh, okay. Stop two takes us inland then uh, off the island uh, straight north to the city of Pisidian Antioch. So there's another Antioch. There's lots of Antiochs throughout the ancient uh, Middle Eastern world here uh, because of someone naming them. Uh, this is a more minor one. The Antioch that they came from is, a, is like the third biggest city in the Roman Empire, a really major city in northern Palestine here. This is a, a more minor city, uh, inland, up uh, these steep mountains to get there. So let's see what happens there. Verse 13. From Paphos, where they just were, uh, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, north, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent them word, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So Paul and Barnabas go to this new town, and and being uh, Jews themselves, they worship uh, with the uh, gathered uh, God-fearers there. They worship in the synagogue. And probably because they had heard something of their reputation, something of their training, they invite 
uh, Paul to speak. And so he takes this as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Verse 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Okay, so Paul is building on their common history. We're going to take this uh, in little, songs, uh, little chunks. It's a larger sermon, so we're going to take it in little chunks here. Uh, Paul is just building on their common history. God chose the people of Israel. He cared for them. He continues, verse 20 again. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So first, God chose Israel. Now, God chose David. Verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So God shows Israel. God shows David. God shows Jesus. Well, how do we know this is true? Well, because of what happens to Jesus. This is, this is that kind of building to his point here. Verse 26, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. So he, he again is, is bringing up evocative. He, he's getting their attention again by calling them out. Fellow children of Abraham, you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jer Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with our ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. So what happened in Jesus' life shows that God did, in fact, chose him. So God chose the people of Israel. He cared for them. He chose David, and he chose Jesus. And this is confirmed by Jesus' life. And even when Jesus was rejected, that was part of God's plan. And we can see that, that God had spoken through his prophets 
to indicate that this would happen. So you look at a text like Isaiah 53, like who has believed our message? He was despised, he was rejected. This is spoken of Jesus. So it's not surprising, it's actually a confirmation of God's work that he was rejected by the people. And that is further confirmed by this powerful resurrection. God raised him from death. So his death was in confirmation of the prophecies. His resurrection is further confirmation that God did, in fact, choose him. And that, too, was part of God's plan. Hence the quotation here from Psalm 2, the quotation from Isaiah 55, and then from Psalm 16.10. And Paul saying, this is good news. God is fulfilling for us in our time what he had promised through uh, his prophets. But here's the question. Why is this actually good news? That's where he's getting to next. Let's get back to the text, verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Okay, now this two-verse section here is huge. This is pivotal to the whole speech. It's basically the, the center, the point of what everything that Paul has said. It's, it's foundational to his message, and it'll pour out into all the letters that he writes to the churches later. This is central to his uh, message. What the death and resurrection of Jesus accomplish is the forgiveness of sins. That's what's at stake in this message. That's why it's good news. It's good news because it means that if you believe in Jesus, you're forgiven. You have justification before God. Okay, now that means a timeout, right? Justification is one of those very, very churchy words. And probably 90% of us don't know what that word means, right? Justification is a heavy, big word. But it's so important that we actually we have to use it. We have to understand what it means because it's central to the message of the faith. Martin, Martin Luther said that the church stands or falls on this article of justification. So what is justification about? Well, the Bible teaches us that we are all sinners, so we'll go back to Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have rejected God by turning away from him, going our own way, and we've set ourselves up as God's enemies. And the Bible says that what that means is that we deserve death. So Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. What we deserve, justice, is for us to spend eternity in hell. That's what the Bible says. That's justice justification changes all of that. Jesus dies to take away the death sentence, to take away the penalty of hell for us. Justification means that Jesus takes your sin from your heart, and the penalty that, that's, that's pushing over you because of your sin, he takes that sin away, and in its place he gives you his own righteousness. Again, Luther called that, that the happy exchange. I love that term, the happy exchange. He takes your sin away and he gives you his own righteousness. That's justification. And because of that, what that means then is that when you stand before the judgment seat of God, the holy God who cannot stand sin, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, you stand there innocent, righteous, forgiven. So Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a huge 
huge thing. That's what justification is. That's why Luther says this, the thing by which the church stands or falls. It means the reason that anyone is going to get into heaven is what? What does our culture tell us? You do lots of good things. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us we can never do enough good things. We're not good people. There's not good in us. Good things come out of good people with good hearts. So when, when we see what comes out of us, we see, well, what's in our heart is actually bad. So we need Jesus to justify us. We need that justification. We need him to take the bad out of us and to replace it with his good. So that the reason that anyone would ever get into heaven is only because of the blood of Christ on our behalf that takes away our sin and covers us with the righteousness of Christ. That is a huge, huge message for us to learn because most of us will go one or two ways. We'll either go down the road of, I am somehow going to find a way to earn my way into heaven, whether or not you admit it, or say it out loud that way, because you might know better. Hopefully you know better. But you still want to do it. That's me. That's, that's my heart. I, I still want to somehow do enough good things to kind of tip the scales, balance them out, and, and do good and earn my way in. Or, on the other hand, say, you know what, I'm just going to live my life. Kind of self-actualization, kind of self-identity, find your own way and don't really worry too much about it and, and hope that everything comes out okay in the end. But the Bible says, no, no, those are both ridiculous. Those, those are foolish human paths to salvation and they will never, never work. This is what works. It's Jesus sent by God to rescue you when you were hopeless. I love that verse in, in Ephesians 2. When you were dead in your sins and transgressions. What does that mean? When you're dead. What can you do when you're dead? Nothing. When you were dead in your sin, Christ died for you. That's justification. It's an incredible message. That's the very heart of what Paul said. If, if you get nothing else from the whole message of the church, get that. Salvation is offered freely in Jesus Christ. 100% the work of God. Okay, so what are these people going to do with this message? Well, we see, first of all, that they have to do something. Paul warns them in verses 40 and 41. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. In other words, you still have to do something with this message. You are called to respond to it. God sends Jesus to rescue you from your sins, but it doesn't happen automatically. You have to respond by putting your faith in him. And he warns them here saying, listen, people have always rejected the work of God. Don't join them. Don't be like them. You've got to do differently. Okay, so how are they actually going to respond? Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Okay, so the initial response is really good, right? They're hearing this message, and it's stirring something within them. They're saying, this has the ring of truth to it. This is an important message. He, he's tying this in. Yes, God chose Israel. He chose David. Now he's saying he chose Jesus, and in him there's forgiveness of sin. So there's something to this message that, that's drawing them in. Verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying. 
and heaped abuse on him. Things start off so well, but then immediately they go sour. Why? Because they were jealous. This is so heartbreaking. It's so ridiculous, right? That they've heard the message. It has stirred their hearts. They, they, they see something here. They, want, they make arrangements to find out more. But then all of a sudden, this weird thing of jealousy creeps up and, and they're, they're disappointed that all of these people would want to come and hear this wonderful good news about God's salvation in Jesus. And they're jealous of his ministry and so they start to turn and actually badmouth Paul and make it so that he can't continue to preach the gospel. It's an incredibly sad thing. So Paul and Barnabas point out what's happening, and then, he turns, then they turn to those who will hear. Verse 46 to the end. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So by their jealousy and by their turning against these missionaries, the Jews are effectively showing that they don't want God's gift of salvation. It's not something that's it's important enough to them to be able to receive. Their, their jealousy fuels this uh, opposition to the message. But on the other hand, we see that Gentiles in the city are filled with joy, and a whole bunch of them come to believe the good news and put their faith in Jesus. So again, we're seeing a mixed response. Who responds to the message? Gentiles. The people that we might not have originally thought would be people who would respond. And who doesn't respond to the message? Well, Jews. People who should have responded well. Because again, Jesus is their, their Messiah. He is the Jewish Messiah in line with everything that God has done for the people of Israel. So Jews end up opposing the gospel. Gentiles accept it gladly. So as we look at these two uh, stops together, we see something of a theme, right? You see that, that sometimes we're going to be bad at judging who's going to respond to this message, right? Uh, and, and we do this sometimes today, too. It's easy for us to think, well, this is, this is someone who probably will be okay with me talking about Jesus around them, but this is someone that, I, I don't know, I'm just not going to talk to, to Jesus about them because they, they probably don't want to hear about it. We, we make assumptions about who will and who won't want to hear the message about Jesus, Maybe you have kind of a, a secret little uh, kind of churchiness uh, radar. You're like, well, well, this person, they're like a four on the churchiness uh, spectrum. I can't really see them in church, so I, I just, I'm not going to talk about Jesus too much. I'll kind of downplay the, the church aspect of my life. Or, or you see someone else, well, well they look pretty churchy. Yeah, I could see them in church. Some, they look like, a, like an eight or a nine on the churchiness spectrum. So I, you know, I'll, I'll talk about Jesus when they're there. Just kind of throw a couple of hints in there. Oh, yeah, I go to church and things like that. But you change. You're, you're judging whether someone's going to respond to the message of Jesus or not, right? Okay, this is important. We're not called to judge who might respond to the gospel. We are called to take the good news of Jesus everywhere we go. Because here's the thing. 
The least likely people are often in the Bible the ones who respond with joy to the message of Jesus. It was true during his earthly ministry, and it's true in the early days of the church as well. We are called, as those who have heard the message, to proclaim it boldly to all who we come into contact with. Okay, so that's one side of it, but there's another uh, side of the application here that's it's actually kind of haunting to me. The haunting part of the story to me as someone who has grown up in the church and been part of the church all my life is is the response of the people who should have responded to Jesus but didn't respond to him. So just like it's easy for us to make assumptions about who will respond to the message about Jesus, it's easy for us to make uh, who will not respond to the message of Jesus. It's also easy for us to make assumptions about who will respond to the message of Jesus or even who already has responded to the message of Jesus. I've been reading a little book uh, on some of the revivals in American history, the times when God has acted in surprising ways to draw a bunch of people to himself and to stir up whole communities uh, with the gospel. And one story came to mind as I was thinking about this passage and looking at the response of different people to the gospel. Uh, a church had invited a pastor from a neighboring town to come and, and to preach in their church because they had, they had heard that that neighboring town had had some just amazing things happening. God was... Um, using the church to, to bring a bunch of people to himself, like the, the really hardened people, the people, again, that you wouldn't expect to receive the message. They were receiving it with joy. People were, lives were changing. It was just really, really exciting. And, and that wasn't happening in their church. It wasn't happening in their town. They didn't know why. And so they wanted to bring in this preacher to, to kind of uh, share what was happening and to share the gospel. So this guest preacher came and, and he, he preached a clear message of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, not on works, not on anything else, but God's salvation in Jesus and then he, at the end, he offered an invitation. He invited people right then and there to respond to the message of salvation, to come and to, to pray a prayer of repentance and a prayer of faith in Jesus, right at the end of the service. And, and to his surprise, the first person to come up the aisle in response was the church's pastor, right? He had a lot of familiarity with the church. He had assumed all of his life that he was a Christian because he, he knew the Bible. He'd been in church. He had so much familiarity, but he realized that he had never personally responded to the gospel message by putting his faith in Jesus. Let's be clear on this. The gospel is a message that demands a response, right? Paul and Barnabas, these missionaries, they, they don't travel over across seas and up mountains and all this stuff to proclaim the good news so that you can have sort of a, hey, that's an interesting message and move on with your life kind of response. With it. This is, is a message that, that is life-changing and it, it demands something of us. Either God did send Jesus to rescue us from our sins or he didn't. And if he did, the only response that makes any sense is to turn away from our sins and to accept the gift that God offers us in Jesus, right? So it's, it's a message that demands a response. I look at what happened with, with the Jews here, with both the sorcerer, the magician, and, and the Jews in Antioch. I think you know, this, this really demands that, that we, as people who gather in a church, do some soul-searching. See, these Jews, they, they knew to worship the right God. They were ostensibly worshiping the right God. And they would gather every week on the Sabbath to hear God's word, likely to sing psalms together. They were gathering in a church-like setting, hearing the word of God week after week after week. But with all of that familiarity, when the gospel comes and when, they are, when the gospel is preached to them, they don't respond to the message. We can grow up in church and come every single Sunday of our lives. We can know every single verse of the Bible by heart. 
We can know all of the Christian songs, all of the old hymns. We can know all of that. We can be tremendously familiar with all things Christian and tremendously comfortable in the church. But if we haven't responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ by putting our faith in him, then we've wholly missed everything. What is at stake here is eternity, right? When Paul uh, talks about the, the response of the Jews here, he says, you reject it, so you don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life in verse 46. That's what's at stake. What is being offered in Jesus is eternal life. Remember, he said that the gospel is good news because the death and resurrection of Jesus means that you are offered forgiveness from your sins. You are offered justification. It means that, that you can stand before the judgment seat of God declared innocent because of the work of Jesus on your behalf. And because of that, you are welcomed into eternal life. So spending lots of time in church, doing lots of nice things for other people, that doesn't get you into heaven. Being justified by the blood of Jesus gets you into heaven. And that means that, that you and I have a choice to make, right? And the choice is a lot bigger than should I go to church or not? Here's the choice. Will I repent of doing things my way? Will I stop and confess my guilt before God and accept God's gift of salvation by putting my whole life in Jesus' hands? Will I believe him or not? And this is the choice that's before each one of us. That's what it means to respond rightly to the message. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message that demands a response. And the only response that leads to life is to put our whole lives in Jesus, to trust him with everything, absolutely everything. It's the only response that leads to God's eternal life. It's the gift that's offered to every one of us. So uh, I do uh, want you to have a chance to respond. If you're, if you're sitting here thinking, boy, I realize that I've never actually responded to it. I've been in church a long time. I've been familiar with it, but I've never actually made that response to you. I'm going to stay up here just for a few minutes after the service. I'd love to walk you through what it means to put your faith in Jesus. Uh, that would be a great uh, joy. Don't do it for social pressure, but if God is pushing you in that direction, don't let social pressure keep you from coming up, if that makes sense. So please do. I'll be up here after the service. Um, do come up if you, if you do feel God's prompting. But, the, but remember, that that's the point, right? Justification is the heart of this whole message. What we are offered is salvation. We have sin in our hearts. We deserve to be condemned. But God sent his son Jesus to change all of that, to take away our sin, to give us his righteousness, and to welcome us into his eternal life. That's what's being offered to us this morning. It's an incredible gift. Let's pray and thank God for his uh, great gift and then sing his praises as we close the service. God, I pray uh, for those who have not yet received the message of Jesus with joy. I, I pray for those who may be here, for those who are out in our community, who don't yet know uh, the joy of your salvation. God, would you please, please use us, use anyone, use your word, use your people to speak your grace into their lives so that they would see what an incredible good news message this is and that their hearts would be turned to you. And Father, for those who are here who have already found the joy of your salvation. Bring us back to that. Bring us back to the, the incredible joy of being forgiven in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would stir our hearts with the gospel, that we would praise you day after day after day for your goodness. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.